If you do have a Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to take it and look at, go to Matthew chapter 8, which is where Joel uh, read from a few moments ago. And our text of scripture will be contained within Matthew 8. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm saying Matthew, Mark, Mark chapter 8, uh, Mark 8, uh, uh, verse 22 through the end of Mark 10, uh, which is verse uh, 52. On Monday, a report by Guidestone Solutions on sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention was released to the public. Uh, Peter Werner of The Atlantic summarized their findings like this. He said, quote, the report concludes that for almost two decades, the men who ran the SBC's executive committee, committee which oversees the day-to-day -day operations of the nation's largest Protestant denomination, of which we are a part, uh, lied, engaged in cover-ups, sided with those who were credibly accused of abuse, and vilified victims of abuse. Past presidents of the convention and a former vice president allegedly protected and supported accused abusers. A Southern Baptist pastor who had been a senior vice president of the SBC's missions arm was credibly accused of assaulting a woman, the report finds. The trail of horrors goes on and on. If you didn't see that report, it could be because the following day, Tuesday, we all solely came to hear about another mass shooting the 214th mass shooting in the United States this year, and the 27th of those shootings at a school. It came on the heels of an apparently racially motivated shooting in Buffalo at a grocery store and a Taiwanese Presbyterian church in California. Uh, Tuesday's tragedy occurred at a Texas elementary school and left 21 lives dead, 19 were children. As I was reading, I think we could say there may have been 22 victims. The husband of one of the teachers who was killed suffered a fatal heart attack two days later, which is a grim reminder that the wake and the ripples of these tragedies goes far and wide. Both the report that was released on Monday and the shooting on Tuesday force us to look into the darkest depths of evil in this world. Namely, the kind of evil that actively seeks to harm children or that callously turns a blind eye to the violation of the least of these. It was the harming of children that Jesus reserved some of his harshest, and might we even say violent, words for. In Matthew 18, responding to the question of who is the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus called a child to him and said that it is those who receive him like a child who are the greatest. And then he says in Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened about his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The power of Jesus' words here and the force of these two events compel me to pause our study in Ephesians and to try to shine the light of God's word on what's happened and to think about where we go from here. 
as God's people. There are many ways that we could approach the reality of these two events within our denomination and within our world. Uh, the one that comes to mind first uh, could be to talk about what we often refer to as the problem of evil. We can ask questions like, why do these terrible things happen in our world? We could wrestle with the confusion that can come from believing rightly that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all things, and also believing rightly that God is all good. Because if he is in complete control of all that happens, and if he is good, then, then why would he allow things like this to happen? These are questions that we would do well to, to wrestle through in our families, with our coworkers, as a church. However, I, I feel compelled to have us come to the scriptures today not to consider the problem of evil, but to consider the problem of power. As I've reflected on and read about these events, what has risen to the surface of my heart is the fact that scripture teaches us that power used for self-preservation or self-promotion or selfish desires is not the way of Jesus or the cross. When we seek to control others who are weaker than us, we are not walking in the steps of Christ, who is the suffering servant and the Lamb of God. We'll say it this way, drawing specifically from Mark 8 through 10. The path towards gaining power to protect our self-interests is the way of Satan, not Jesus. The path, the path towards gaining power, a specific kind of power, gaining power to protect our own self-interests, that is the way of Satan, not Jesus. The path towards gaining power to protect our self-interests is the way of Satan, not Jesus. Could that statement be nuanced? Sure. Are there exceptions to the truth of it? I would imagine that there probably are, but my hope is that God would open our eyes to see that we don't live our everyday lives in the margins of nuance and exceptions. Rather, we who name the name of Christ and take on the name of Christian are to be marked by the character of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus' life was one of laying aside rights and using his power to protect others, not himself. We'll see this throughout the Gospels, but I want us to see it here in a few places in Mark 8 through 10. Setting the context, Jesus has gone about his ministry of preaching and healing in the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And as he has done that, he's been revealed more and more as the true Messiah, the, the Savior that the Jewish people had been looking and longing for. The disciples had a front row seat to this revelation of Jesus as the Christ, such that when Jesus asks the question in Mark 8, 29, of who they as his closest companions say that he is, Peter says what everyone else in that room is thinking. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And wrapped up in that statement are a mixture probably of correct and incorrect, clear and distorted understandings of who the Messiah would be. But at least a large portion of that understanding is the idea that the Messiah, in the words of Nathaniel in John chapter 1, is the king of Israel. He is the, the descendant of King David who would reign with perfect justice and mercy over his people. However, the conquering Messiah king that Peter and the disciples had in mind when they affirmed that Jesus was the Christ had much more to do with power and authority 
than with suffering and serving. But Jesus was not only the messianic king, he was also the suffering servant. And it's that reality that he unfolds for the disciples in the remaining chapters of the Gospel of Mark. In doing so, he helps us see that we are all often like the blind man that opens this middle section of Mark. You remember that story as Joel read it, that Jesus healed this man, and yet his vision was not clear until a second touch from Christ. Like him, we see who Jesus is, but often our vision is a little bit distorted. And so we need a second touch from the Savior to fully grasp the surprising nature of this king who is also the suffering servant. The pattern of Mark 8 through 10 is clear and helpful. We find three times in these chapters that Jesus foretells his suffering and death, which is followed by an example of the disciples grasping for power and for recognition, to which Jesus responds with a teaching on what true discipleship is. So the pattern is prediction, misunderstanding, and correction. A prediction of his suffering and death, a misunderstanding by the disciples, and then a correction from Jesus that speaks of what true discipleship is. And so I want us to see this pattern and see a few specific truths related to the kind of power that protects self-interest, and then we're going to seek to apply these truths to our own lives, as well as the tragedy that unfolded in the Southern Baptist Convention and in Robb Elementary. The first instance of this prediction, misunderstanding, correction pattern occurs in Mark 8, 31 through 38, which Joel read earlier, and in it we find this truth related to our big idea. If we seek to gain the world, we will lose our souls. If we seek to gain the world, we will lose our souls. We've already seen Peter's Confession of Jesus as the Christ, which is followed by Jesus telling the disciples that he is going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. And on hearing this, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Immediately following Peter's good confession, he reveals that his one-sided picture of Jesus was not a simple misunderstanding, but in fact had become a satanic deception. His mind, Jesus says, was not set on the things of God. His mind was on the things of man. That reference to Satan takes us back to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of the gospel where Satan held out, among other things, power. He told Jesus that if he would worship at the temple of self-interest, he could have the kingdoms of the world. That temptation in the wilderness goes back even further and we take it all the way back to the temptation in the garden which again, among other things, held out to Adam and Eve, power. When given the option of grasping for power, they listened to the serpent. Surrounded by abundance, they chose the one thing that had been wisely withheld from them, and so they died. When Peter rebuked Jesus, it was the voice of Satan once again, tempting Jesus to grab power and avoid suffering. Grab power and avoid humiliation. Avoid the cross. It was the temptation to use the power at his disposal for his own self-interest rather than to lay it aside for the salvation of his flock. And as he did in the desert and as he would do in the garden, Jesus passed the test that was posed by Peter's 
rebuke. And in passing that test, he called his disciples to the same kind of power-shunning life. There's a whole sermon here in verses 34 through 38, but could we simply acknowledge that the follower of Jesus is to be someone who is continually losing his or her life, laying down his or her rights so that the good news of salvation might fill the earth. And in contrast to that, if we seek after the world, if we, if we grasp for power and position, we may get it, but we'll lose our souls. At the end of the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which you probably didn't expect me to reference, Wonka says to Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. And Charlie says, what happened? And Wonka says, he lived happily ever after. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But it's akin to the satanic temptation to power. That, that if you can work hard and you can get everything you've always wanted, even if it means walking over the weak and the vulnerable in the process, then you'll live happily ever after. It, it was the lie that the men who ignored the cries of abuse victims believed. They chose to hold power and to use power to protect themselves instead of using their power to protect others. And they got everything they wanted. But Jesus says it would have been better for them to have a stone tied around their neck and then dropped into the ocean because they lost their souls in the process. And if our hearts are more concerned with gaining worldly power, whether it be as individuals or as a church or as evangelical Christians, then we have set our minds on the things of man and not on the things of God. Don't buy the lie that more power will bring you happiness. And don't buy the lie that using power to gain the world will bring you joy, even if others are harmed in the process. You might get the world, but you'll lose your soul. Choose instead to follow Jesus into death, into the way of the cross, and you will save your life. How? By losing it. Following this statement in Mark 9, we see the transfiguration of Jesus, the healing of a demon-possessed boy, after which Jesus foretells his death again. Look at Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. It says, They, the disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In light of his coming crucifixion, on the heels of his disciples arguing about who's the greatest, Jesus warns us a second thing. 
If we seek to be first, we will be last. If we seek to be first, we will be last. After Jesus had told them again of his suffering and death, the disciples had been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. What a contrast. I wonder what their criteria was. What each one said that made him better than the others and therefore deserving of first place in the kingdom. Into their argument, though, Jesus offers true criteria, the true criteria of greatness in his kingdom and among his followers. He says that the one who wants to be first must seek to be last. He or she must be the servant of all. Greatness comes in laying down our desire to be over others and choosing to be under the authority of others. To always look for the back of the line in service to others. To always defer to the needs of others above our own. That's true greatness. And as an example of this attitude, what does Jesus do? He brings a child in. He takes this child in his arms and he says that to receive a child in his name is to receive him and therefore receive his father. To serve a child in Jesus' name is of first importance in Jesus' kingdom. Brothers and sisters, children are not an inconvenience in the church. They are not a secondary matter in the church. They are one of the greatest opportunities to true greatness and joy in God's kingdom. Serving in the nursery and teaching Sunday school or just welcoming children in Jesus' name with the love of Jesus is practice for how we receive Jesus himself. And in the same way, fighting to protect children in the name of Jesus is how we show we are his children. Which makes it all the more evil that the church is often just like the world when it comes to protecting children. Certainly the church should be the place where children are the most protected. Where we do everything that we can to receive and watch over children. Surely God's people would be most concerned about protecting the lives of the little ones, many of whom fear now the simple act of going to school. In the world, children are used as stepping stones to gain greatness. But in the church, in the kingdom of God, they are examples of true faith. And serving them and protecting them is the path to true greatness and even the spread of God's glory in this world. Let's move to the final of these three statements regarding the rejection of power for self-interest. We see it in Mark chapter 10. Nearby, though, we see Jesus again speak of little children, so we should look at that. He seems to be rebuking the disciples for hindering the children from coming to him. Uh, in contrast to that attitude, Jesus becomes indignant with the disciples. He's, he's angry. And he says in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Again, the, di the disciples continue to show that they don't understand true greatness in God's kingdom. And Jesus is frustrated by the evidence of their misunderstanding, which is found in the way that they push away children. They've missed it. 
because they're not letting children come to Jesus. And Jesus says, that's the opposite of my kingdom. Well, on to Mark 10, 32 to 34. We see there that Jesus again predicts his death, which is followed by James and John approaching Jesus to ask a question. What's the question? Can we sit at your right and your left hand in glory? They want Jesus to promise them the two highest positions of power in his earthly kingdom. After his prediction of suffering, their, their personal prestige is what is foremost in their minds. Jesus is gentle, though, uh, is gentle but honest in his reply to them. And when he sees that the other disciples are a little upset with James and John, maybe because they asked the question before the rest of them had a chance, Jesus offers this teaching, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the third truth in contrast to the temptation to hold power for our own self-interest. If we seek to be served, we will never be truly satisfied. If we seek to be served, which is what we're told to do, that, that's going to make us happy. But if we seek to be served, we will never be truly satisfied. Jesus, again, returns to this theme of serving others as a mark of his kingdom. The attitude, this attitude, is, verse 42 says, is the opposite of the world, which chooses to wield its authority over each other. But that's not how it's supposed to be with God's children. It's supposed to be totally different. We don't fight to get to the top. We race to the bottom. We seek to serve. Mark 10, 45 is often said to be a summary verse for this entire gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It tells us who Jesus is in contrast to who everyone thought he should be. It reminds us that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. His mission was not to crush his enemies, but to be crushed for his enemies. He didn't want to bury his opponents. He was crucified and buried as an innocent man, accused and convicted only of loving others and only of professing who he truly was, the Son of God himself. If you're here and you have no hope of eternal life or satisfaction in life, know this, that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again so that you could be his forever child and be welcomed into his kingdom with arms of forgiveness and love. And so as Jesus says, following the washing of the disciples' feet, this is all to be an example for us to follow. We are to walk in Jesus' steps of humble service, not seeking to be served, but seeking to serve others. This, this middle section of Mark, verses eight through, or chapters 8 through 10, ends with the healing of another blind man. That's exactly how uh, this chapter began. He, Jesus asks blind Bartimaeus the same question that he asked James and John when they approached him. You know what the question was? What do you want me to do for you? James and John said, we want to sit high in your kingdom. What was Bartimaeus' response? said, Lord, I want to see. 
And so my prayer is that we would respond like Bartimaeus to Jesus' question and not like James and John. That we would say, Lord, I want to see. I want to see the beauty of your sacrifice. I want to see that the way of grasping for power to protect my self-interest is not the way of the cross. I want to see the beauty that's found in laying down my rights and seeking to serve others in your name and not caring about my position, not caring about my authority. We might begin with our relationships, especially those where we have a desire for authority. In our marriages, are we seeking to lovingly serve one another? Or are we always fighting for power over one another? In our parenting, do we love to wield our power over our children more than we love to graciously serve them? In our friendships, are we using people to get what we want? Or are we seeking to bless others in, a, in every way possible? As employer, employees or employers, is our goal to control others or manipulate the system for our own personal advantage? Or do we see the value of putting others before us, even if it means that we miss out on some perceived benefit? Do we have the mind of Christ that would see the temptation toward the power to promote our self-interest as being from Satan himself? Application of God's word should always begin with our own hearts, but my hope is that understanding this call of Jesus would also help us think about not only how our hearts might respond to both the SBC abuse report and the shooting in Uvalde, but also how we might move forward fruitfully. One thought is that we might respond like Jesus to the shunning of children, and that's by being indignant. We might respond with righteous anger. Yes, we lament all that has happened, but we are angry. We're angry that men who represented Christ chose to hold power to protect themselves and the wolves in sheep clothing that they were made aware of. We aren't pridefully indignant, but we are indignant nonetheless. And that indignation leads us to ask questions about how we hold power and who we give power to in the church and in our wider circles. It means we are careful about who we allow to care for the children that are entrusted to us. And we don't apologize for making sacrifices to protect the hearts and the bodies of the children in this church. No apologies for it. How could these thoughts about power also help us engage this debate on gun control that's come up again, as it always does when these mass shootings happen? How might Jesus' words shine a light into that discussion? How might Mark 8 through 10 shape the way that we engage with this topic as members of our society and as members of Christ's church? There's no denying the fact that to hold a gun is to hold power. The power to kill. That power can be used for various ends. Some of them are good and some of them are demonic. So the question is, who gets that power? Who has the right to hold that power? Who has the right to hold the power to, to kill? And it's right, is, it, is, it the, is, it, is the right to hold that power in our hands something that we as followers of Jesus should be fighting for? Of course, we could rightly say that guns aren't the only thing that kills people, right? We might think about cars. 
and the fact that to drive a car is to hold the power to kill another person. Which is why there are so many laws about who gets to drive and who should be prohibited from driving. It's why car manufacturers spend time and money to find innovative ways to make cars safer. The laws and the technology don't solve the problem, but they seek to help, and they do help. An article I read this week said this, beginning in the mid-1990s, all states adopted graduated licensing systems which phase in full driving privileges. National studies of graduated licensing found that strong laws were associated with substantially lower fatal crash rates and substantially lower insurance claim rates among young teen drivers covered by the laws. Strong restrictions on nighttime driving and teen passengers, as well as raising the licensing age, reduced rates of fatal crashes and insurance collision claims. Something good came out of them. Still, in 2016, motor vehicle crashes continued to be the leading cause of death among those ages 1 to 19, with gun violence second place. But, it, but uh, and again, this is a quote from another, another article, this one drawing for some, from some data from the CDC. Since 2016, that gap has narrowed. And in 2020, firearm-related injuries became the leading cause of death in those ages 1 to 19. From 2019 to 2020, the relative increase in the rate of firearm-related deaths of all types, suicide, homicide, unintentional, and undetermined, among children and adolescents was 29.5%, more than twice as high as the relative increase in the general population. The increase was seen across most demographic characteristics and types of firearm-related death. A lot of statistics in there, but do you feel the weight of that? In the past two years, in the past two years, the leading cause of death for children who live in the United States, one of the most developed nations in the world, is gunfire. The, the, in the past two years, the leading cause of death for children is gunfire. And as best I can tell, part of the reason that the problem increases and that we do not put the kind of energy behind dealing with this epidemic like we do childhood diseases or even car fatalities is the lust for power. People who have power want to keep it, and people who don't have it want to hold it, so we do nothing. Now, at this point, I imagine that some of you are tracking with me, and some of you have a few thoughts you'd like me to consider, <laughs> and I'm fine with that. I will admit that this discussion is better as a conversation than a monologue. It's one where you address one aspect and three more pop up that we need to talk about. But I hope you know my heart. I hope you know my, my pattern of, of teaching and my pattern of life. I just want us to consider how God's word and his eternal wisdom confront us and call us into greater Christ-likeness how we might do the good works laid before us as spirit-indwelt children of God. How we, it, it's Christ-likeness. It's the, the, the spirit of Jesus that we're always striving for. That's who we say we are. We're Christians. We're little Christ, so we want to look like him. And so my heart is not to say who should or who shouldn't own a gun or, or what laws should or should not be in place. That's not what I'm talking about. I simply want us as followers of Jesus to talk about guns from our identity as children of God and followers of Jesus, first and foremost. 
I want our talking points to be rooted in Scripture and the character of Christ, not in political parties and not in cable news pundits. So let me speak just to one spirit that I see in this debate that feels antithetical to what Jesus is teaching here. There is a spirit within gun rights advocacy that is summed up in the famous words of Charlton Heston, who held a rifle up above his head and announced to the cheers of a crowd, from my cold, dead hands. Friends, I don't care if he played Moses in a movie. That is not the spirit of Jesus. The only thing that Jesus was willing to die for was the redemption of the souls of his enemies. The testimony of the life of our Savior is one of lovingly and willingly laying down his rights, not holding on to them. Am I saying that you can't be pro-Second Amendment and be a Christian? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the Christian fights tooth and nail for the weak and for the oppressed with a thousand times more energy and more passion and more righteous anger than he or she fights for the right to bear arms. When tragedies like this happen, why are so many caught up first in protecting the right to bear arms before considering measures that might be taken to protect children who are just going to school? Why are we willing to speak loudly for the unborn who face the violence of abortion? As we should but we are unwilling to have a meaningful conversation about the fact that the children who are born into this nation, the ones that are born, are more likely to be killed by gunfire than anything else. I don't know if you hear it. I'm a little indignant. And I'm brokenhearted. because I'm a pastor and I'm a father. And so these things get right at where I am and I'm tired of it. Let's be clear, our ultimate hope is not legislation. It's not anything else, it's the cross. Our ultimate hope is not a new denominational structure it's for the new birth to finally have the effect in us that it should. We ultimately need new hearts. But those of us with new hearts are also called to care for those that the world runs over. And Jesus tells us the path towards gaining power to protect our self-interest, that is the way of Satan. It is not the way of Jesus. And the thing about Jesus is that you can't dismiss him as an idealist who didn't understand the real world, real world consequences of laying aside his power. Because he knew exactly what he was saying. He knew what was in the hearts of every man. And he shows us three times, just in this passage, that he knew his unwillingness to grasp for power, his unwillingness to get power for his own self-interest would end up costing him his life. He knew it. And he laid down all of his rights for us. I think he laid them down too because not only did he predict his death, but what else did he predict? His resurrection. He knew about the resurrection and we would do well to remember that our hope is not in this world, but in the kingdom of God. And we would do well to remember that Jesus is going to return. 
He's going to set up his kingdom. And on that day, he's going to judge the whole world in perfect righteousness. My hope is that when he comes, we are found faithful. Not powerful. When Jesus comes, the church should not be found powerful. It should be found faithful. And how are we faithful? We're faithful by dying every day to bless others, especially the weakest.